0: Well, hi, hi, welcome, welcome. I wanna add my welcome to Janet's welcome, especially to new people. We're happy that you found us, that you joined us um, and that you introduced yourself. So my name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And um, last time I um, was starting in the doctor's opinion, and we got uh, about halfway through and, um, the paragraph that I had left off on, I'm gonna kind of jump in and start there. It's um, an XXVIII, and it talks about frothy emotional appeal. And I'm gonna kind of reiterate that because I think it's something that um, if you have what I have, people have likely appealed to you in that emotional way. And, um, and if you have what I have, chances are you also have met other people who have this, maybe they're potential sponsees, maybe they're potential fellows. And there's this um, almost natural desire to appeal to people with this emotionally charged way. And so it says that emotional frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, which means it doesn't work. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic types um these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. And so what does it mean to have depth and weight when they're talking about? So I, I'll give, you know, I left off the last time with my example of fourth Emotional Appeal. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat it um for those of you that are new and also for those that were here to sort of like kind of capture where we had left off. So um most of my life, I had people who sat me down and um, would say to me, like, you're, you're a smart girl, you're a pretty girl, you've got so much going for you, you know, look at your husband, look at your whatever, and stop doing what you're doing, right? Like you're hurting yourself. And, and so what I would feel in response to that is like, I would feel bad. I would feel like embarrassed, ashamed, um, sometimes motivated. But that's not, that's not a message of depth and weight. It's not enough. And what like for me, one of the most painful experiences was when um, my mother in law appealed to me from this way. Like I had a, by the way, I had a doctor who told me that I wasn't gonna make it out of my 40s. And he used a like, fear tactic. That's an emotion, right? And that didn't work, right? And then I had my mother-in-law who um, sat me down at my kitchen table in my house. Um, And my kids were babies at the time. And she began to tell me about how it was so painful for her growing up without a mother. That was her experience. Her mother died when she was a little girl. And she said, you know, Melissa, it's like, um, even the happiest occasions, there's always something missing. She talked about how birthdays were never the same, Christmas was never the same, and, and that it was a really sad way for her to grow up. And then she continued and said, you know, and then she saw it happen to her children because my husband's father died. My husband was about seven years old when his dad died. So my mother-in-law not only lost her mother as a little girl, but then lost her husband in her early thirties. And she was left with two little boys. Right? So my mother-in-law started to cry. Talk about frothy emotional appeal. And she's crying. And she said, "Um, I'm looking at you, Melissa, and you're going to do this to my grandchildren. And Um, and I felt horrible, like it, it, um, I was embarrassed. I felt humiliated. I felt angry. That was my response. Um, I did not feel, um, motivated at that. I felt just so embarrassed that as soon as my mother-in-law left, I ate and I was mad at her. That was my response. I was like, how dare she? And I didn't answer the phone from her for a bit after that because I was insulted and embarrassed. And um, and now when I look back at it, I think how difficult it must've been for her to sit me down and have that conversation. She did not want to hurt me. She was genuinely concerned for me and my children, and I know my mother-in-law, I know her really well. And I can almost imagine now today that she ran this by her girlfriend, her really close bestie who lives across the street. And I'm picturing it now, thinking she must have had conversations with her about it and said, like, how could I, how could I speak to Melissa about this? What could I do? Um, and yet this is frothy emotional appeal, right? It didn't have depth and weight. And what it says in this paragraph, in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So it doesn't work when we sit across from other people um, and tell them that they're killing themselves. What actually works for people like us is I can tell you that I was killing myself and I'm not killing myself today. And that's a message that is depth and weight because it comes with a wealth of experience. And if you remember last time when we started in the very beginning, it said that it's the, it's the, um, it's the witnessing our return to health that really gets people interested. So that's why I always share my photos, right? Because that way you can witness my return to health So when I tell you I was killing myself, you understand what I mean, right? Um, And so it also says here that in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So what that tells me is that I'm going to have to have some new ideals and they're going to have to be ideals that are grounded in something bigger than me that these ideals are not going to be ideals that are grounded in Melissa's way, but in what I believe God's way might be. And that that is a requirement for getting well, that my ideals have to shift so that they become what I believe God would have me be. Those are the ideals, right? And that it also says here that If they are to recreate their lives, okay, that gives us a lot of information in this doctor's opinion, because it doesn't just mean that I'm going to have to recreate my food plan. I'm going to have to recreate my diet. It means my life as I know it is going to have to be restructured, reformed. And so if you're thinking that you're going to fit, people say that they, you know, I don't know that that's going to work for my life, right? I'm going to try to fit this recovery into my life. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. It actually, you know, I tried for many years to try to fit OA into the structure of my life that I had before. And by the way, that life wasn't going very well, right? And so we have to be willing to say, you know what? The way that I'm living isn't working and I need to recreate my life. I need something new. Goes on now to say men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, They pass through the well-known stages of a spree and, sorry, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. It's a jam-packed paragraph. I'm going to break it down. We drink. We eat because we get an effect. We get a hit, I get a hit. I don't eat because I'm a foodie. I don't eat because I love food. It's not because I like the taste of food. It's not because I like the flavor of food. It's not for the texture and it's not for the presentation. You know, I've seen foodies. I see their beautiful, tiny little plates Everything's arranged so lovely and neat. That's not the way that I wanna eat when I'm in the throes of the food. I don't care what it looks like. Give me the bag. In fact, I'm after the more. I don't wanna go, you know, when I'm in the midst of the disease, I don't wanna go to fancy pretty restaurants where they give me like tablespoonfuls of food. I want it keeping over, limitless, family style, right? buffet in fact crappier the better why because i get a hit because i get a buzz off of that food and what it is with this buzz um my experience is that i actually can feel that buzz before i actually eat it which is i remember being a kid on my way home in the school bus knowing what was in the house and i could already feel something shifting inside me, my head was already changing. I couldn't hear the conversation of my friends on the bus because I knew what was in the refrigerator or I knew it was in the cabinet. I knew my grandmother had been there and she left brownies or whatever it was, right? And that's all that I could focus on. And what happens is it seems normal to eat that way, that, that I get this, hit, and I would get it when it's in the shopping cart, right? And sometimes just knowing it's there. And what would happen is once I would take a bite of it, the effect that I get from it, it's elusive, which means it escapes me. It's not long lasting. It's, it's like I see it like a fog. And when I put my hand to touch it, it dissipates. It's not even there, right? But I've already taken the bite. And now, since I have this twofold problem, this allergy of the body, once I take a bite, I can't dial it back. It's like trying not to get a rash if you're allergic to strawberries and you ate a strawberry. Once I take a bite, I can't dial it down. And what would happen is that I'm off on a spray, right? I'm off on a spray. I am eating, I'm binging, right? And I want to, you know, it says we emerge remorseful. I have never emerged from a binge and said, ah, that hit the spot. Never. I have never, ever gotten the ease and satisfaction that I think I'm going to get. Never. So... I would say I'm someone, you know, who has a spot that can't be hit with the food. It's, it's like, doesn't exist. So what would happen for me is I would have a spray. I would go off on a binge. And as my disease progressed, my binges got longer and they required more food. They lasted longer and they took more to consume. I had to consume more. And then the times that I emerged remorseful became fewer and farther between. They were shorter in duration and they didn't happen very often. So it seemed like, you know, they call this the addiction cycle because what happens is you don't eat and you get this itchy, irritable feeling on the inside. I would say it's like, almost like I have a dog, right? I love to explain things by a dog. When my dog is trying to get settled, like walks around and around in circles until we can find the right spot. That's what it's like for me when I'm itchy, irritable and I wanna eat. Can't can't find the spot, I can't find the spot. And then I eat, I eat, and then I'm off on a binge, right? And what happens is they call this the spiral. They call it the cycle, but I actually say it's a spiral because my binges get longer, they require more food, I emerged remorseful fewer and farther in between. I've had binges that lasted years. I'm telling you, they lasted years. The only way for me that my binging ever stops, this is my truth, once I'm binging, there's only three ways that my binging comes to a halt. One is I get physically so sick that I can't possibly put another bite in my mouth um, and I would pass out. I would just pass out. I, I couldn't actually eat anymore. Two, I run out. There's nothing available to me and I can't get to it. Or three, and this was the way that it usually happened was I got interrupted by someone else. Someone came home, someone showed up on the scene. That's how my binges end, right? And so I, this happened for me over and over and over and over again. And every time I emerge, I'm remorseful. And I make this commitment, this promise that I'm never gonna do it again. And I can't stop it, right? Unless I can experience an entire psychic change. Unless my entire, and when a psychic changes, a personality, Change sufficient to bring about recovery. It's a spiritual awakening, that's a psychic change, it's an awakening. Something awakens, right? And that's the power of the 12 steps and a relationship with God. Right? If if I don't do that, the doctor's opinion tells me, if I don't get that spiritual awakening, I am destined to repeat this cycle and spiral over and over and over again. It's pretty hopeless. It's pretty hopeless. I think the doctor's opinion starts making it really clear. Something's gotta change. Something big has to change. It can't just be your food. It's gotta be your life, right? On XXIX, this is good news. It says on the other hand, thank God there's another hand. And strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. So once we have the psychic change, we can actually control the desire, not the allergy. Let's be clear. It doesn't mean that I can start eating my alcoholic foods or eat off my food plan and I'll be able to handle it. What it means is that the desire, the mental twist that drives me, back to eating the thing that I know is killing me, that is easily controlled. And when I think about it like this is, my desire for eating was always like a tiger in a cage. It was strong and powerful, and I just wanted a stronger cage. And there is no cage strong enough for that tiger. Doesn't exist, right? However, A psychic change means that the tiger is not a tiger anymore, becomes a kitten. I don't want the things that I once did. And that is not an experience that's unique to me. That is the promise of being recovered. That's what it means to be recovered, that we no longer desire those foods anymore. And I think that's the best news of all, because if you have not experienced that, if you have not experienced complete neutrality that means that there's something that you have not done in these steps because the guarantee of these steps is that once a psychic change has occurred the desire is easily the desire is easily controlled so this is good news right the only thing you have to follow is a few simple rules which are our steps are our steps, right? Those are the steps. And I would say the psychic change means that the spiral that was wrapped so tight that my life felt like a black dot, I have a psychic change and the spiral gets unraveled. I'm not in a spiral anymore. Doesn't exist for me. Okay, now it says many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. Well, we don't respond to the ordinary psychological approach. And I would say, you know, therapy which is the psychological approach is wonderful. I have nothing against therapy. I have nothing against psychologists, good doctors. In fact, we support good doctors. We say, absolutely. But therapy never treated my compulsive overeating ever. You know, it's just not the solution to this particular problem. It's like taking the wrong medication. And psychological approaches for me tend to examine the why. They look at the why, why do you have this problem? Why did you get this way? What happened to you? And a lot of the times, the ones that I liked, the ones that I sought after were ones that looked to assign blame to parents that was usually the ones that i liked i wanted a psychological approach that was going to pinpoint what my parents did wrong right and if that's what you're hoping to get from the 12 steps that's not what we have to offer um and what i would say to you is that um you know the examining the why like why did why did this happen to me why did i have this food addiction um you know the I think it's a uh, immature question. I think it's a question of someone who doesn't always wanna take action. And I think about it like this. My kids, when I asked them to do something that they didn't wanna do, they always ask me why. And I think like that happened when they were really little and I would say, you know, you need to go to bed. And they would say, why? Why? And now they don't really want me to sit them down and explain to them Well, because everybody needs eight hours of sleep, it's important for growing brains, or right now, they just don't want to go to sleep. And that was the same with me when I asked why. I just don't want to do what's necessary. Why might be interesting? Here's the other thing I found out, is that assigning blame, it doesn't solve my problem. Because even if I find out very specifically, right? If I could find out specifically that my parents did something to cause this problem, right? Well, first of all, I know my parents, and if they did, they didn't intend to do any harm. Or maybe you have parents that did intend to do harm, and maybe that's it as well. Regardless, unless we're gonna get in a time machine and undo our past, we gotta do something about it, right? We have to do something about it. So psychological approaches don't work for food addiction. Um, I do not hold, it says with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. So this is not just about having mental control because I have had excellent mental control in other areas of my life, but the phenomenon of craving, it says, becomes paramount to all other interests. So that whatever important appointments, whatever important work I have to do, it doesn't get met. And it's not that I eat to escape some other problem in my life, but I am eating because I cannot overcome a craving. That's beyond my mental control. So when it says like paramount, when you have this thing that becomes paramount, I would say my craving becomes the God. It becomes everything and nothing else matters. It becomes the most important thing. It doesn't matter that I'm gonna eat all my kids snack and there's gonna be nothing for them in the morning to put in their lunch. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I'm a woman who I like to think who has integrity, and now I'm stealing from colleagues the candy in their room. Doesn't matter, because this becomes paramount to everything else. I cannot control what happens once I ingest certain substances. It's like all bets are off. On XXX, it says the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are of course the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. They're overly remorseful and make many resolutions but never a decision. So I've been emotionally unstable, right? Like getting all worked up over things and um, making all these commitments. And I was actually always told growing up that I'm overly emotional. My nickname, um, my mother called me Desdemona because I always had like a sob story. I was always like, oh, my woe is me tales. And that would be off in me with the food. I would eat and I would be like, oh, I can't believe I did it. And all full of that over emotional thing. And that's it. I'm never doing it again. I'm gonna lose this weight, and keep it off going on the wagon for keeps, right? Overly remorseful. And I make resolutions, but never a decision. And I would say, what's the difference between a resolution and a decision? A resolution is a promise with no plan, nothing behind it. No real plan in motion, just an empty promise. But a decision is a decision to go through with the work. It's very different from a a resolution. And then there's the type of man who's unwilling to admit cannot take a drink he plans various ways of drinking he changes his brand or his environment so that was me and i would say changing my brand or my environment would be changing my diet now i'm on Atkins that's it i'm never eating another carb the rest of my life now i'm going organic i'll never eat anything that's ever processed again now i'm going vegan if it ever you know had a face i'm not eating it if it you know I mean, I was always going on some other thing. And I loved the ones that told me I could eat this particular food as much as I want. Right? I loved that idea. Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quantity volume eater. That's what I wanted. Um, and then there's the type that believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time. He can take a drink without danger. Well, boy, have I been there because that explains why it was that I've lost weight many times that I had success. Early on in Overeaters Anonymous, I swore I would never eat sugar and flour again. And I was able to lose weight and keep it off for a period of time. And then just like that, on a sunny day, it changed my mind and I started eating again. And then, There's the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends. And a whole chapter could be written about that person. So it's like up and down and up and down and up and down. And then there are the types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. And I think that little paragraph was put in there for those of us who don't wanna think that we're like the other kind, right? I wanna think like I'm able, intelligent, and friendly. And guess what? Sometimes I am. I would think that I'm actually all of those types. It just depends on the day. I can fall into any one of those characters. But here's the thing. All these and many others have one symptom in common. We cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon as we have suggested may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And so this is where I always kind of do this illustration about what it means to be different, distinct, right? We've got one thing in common. And I would say distinct, recognizably different in nature from something else of a similar type. Physically separate, so clearly apparent as to be unmistakable, definite. So um, I say, I'm a distinct entity because that's what the doctor's opinion tells me. And what I illustrate for people is that I take a piece of paper and I fold it in half, right? And here's this piece of paper and there's the crease in the paper, right? It's there. It can't undo the crease. I am distinct means, yes, I have this allergy of the body, but I'm also someone as the doctor's opinion tells me, I'm someone who can appear normal, but be hopeless. I'm someone who can not apply psychological methods. I'm someone with whom all other methods have failed. I'm a person who needs to recreate their life. I'm someone who must have a spiritual awakening I'm someone who cannot differentiate the true from the false. I've got a lot of characteristics that make me separate and distinct. I have to have ideals that are grounded in something greater than me, right? And see that crease? It can never be eradicated. This crease is permanent, can't be undone. So my success, in living happy, productive life requires that I spend my life living on this side of the page. I can love people that are here, my family, right? They can eat with impunity, which means they can take a bite without any of the punishing effects. They can do all sorts of things and I can love them, but I can't live on this side of the page with them. It means I can't live according to their to their code. I got a little according to this code. And my problem has been, and I see many people's problems have been that sometimes I feel so healthy and so well here, but I think I ought to be able to hang out here. And that's what gets me in trouble, right? But the good news is I'm looking at the numbers here today. There's 139 other folks on this meeting. And if you're like me, we're not alone. We can live on this side of the page together and we can help people live on this side of the page peacefully and well, right? So what's the solution then, right? If I've got to live on this side of the page, how am I gonna live? How am I actually gonna do it? Well, on XXXI, it says, what is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences, right? I know I can't stop once I start and I can't stop myself from starting again. I know I need a psychic change and I know I can't give myself the needed change. So what do I do then? The doctor's opinion now is going to give two examples of doomed people who have experienced miracles of healing because what am I going to do? I'm going to chase down a miracle with everything I got home. Step one tells me that nothing but an act of providence, nothing but a miraculous intervention is going to help me. And so if I know that, all of the actions I take are going to be in order to cultivate the miraculous in my life. It's going to be all about having a miracle, a miracle of healing. So this guy, right, the first one, um, and the reason that they're gonna give us two examples, it's to pique our curiosity, to get us excited about the possibility of a miracle, which is also why we share our own miraculous healings, which is why, you know, when, when we share on meetings, we tell, what it was like, what happened to us, and what it's like today. And the purpose is to get people excited about the prospect of a miracle. So the first guy here, he had a gastric hemorrhage, pathological mental deterioration, lost everything worthwhile in life, and said he was hopeless, right? He put down the alcohol, and followed the plan in this book. So put down the food, they followed the plan. And what happened was he went from a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck and emerged self-reliant and content. He didn't seem like the same person at all. This is my personal experience as well. Beaten down, in terrible physical shape, couldn't make eye contact, terrified, filled with anxiety. That's where I was when I finally surrendered. My experience was, yes, I was morbidly obese, but worse than that was I felt beaten down inside. I had um, horrible, horrible panic and anxiety. And I never had had that before in my life. All of a sudden the food could not shut the anxiety down. I kept trying to eat to kind of get back to zero. And I couldn't get to zero. I couldn't consume enough food to get me that sensation, that elusive sensation. And that for me, my last binge, I ate my mouth blood. And I was having tunnel vision I was driving and I felt like, um, I thought, I think I'm dying because um, my heart was pounding and I, everything was like getting like tunnel vision and I'm driving. And I thought, holy smokes, I'm going to have a stroke. I, I think I'm dying. And this other frightening thought that came into my head was, I think I'm supposed to care. And that was terrifying. Um, I don't live that way today, right? That's the good news. I don't live that way today. The next one discussed made his own diagnosis and determined he was hopeless. And by the way, this is actually a prerequisite for recovery. You actually have to say I'm hopeless. I feel like I'm hopeless. I feel like I got nothing left. He was determined to die but was rescued, he was desperate. And I love this. He was the recipient of a search and rescue mission, which is what we like to say, that we are, all those of us who get well have received a search and rescue mission, that we believe that God launched a search and rescue mission and that we were saved. And that once you have been saved on one of these search and rescue missions, what happens is is that um, you're changed, that God enters your heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And when that happens, what happens is with these new ideals that are grounded in a power greater than yourself, you just wanna become part of someone else's search and rescue mission. That becomes your heart's greatest desire. And you know what's awesome is that I have seen that happen countless times, not just, not just for me, but I have seen people working the steps intensively get to a certain point. And all of a sudden they're saying things like, you know, I have a neighbor who I think might need this program. Or they start saying, even before they realize it, I have a friend of the family who I think I want to bring to a meeting because it could help them. They just naturally start thinking about other people and helping them get well. And that has happened over and over and over again. So he was determined to die, but he was rescued. Following his physical rehabilitation, he thought that that this couldn't work. His problems were too complex. His depression so great, but he became sold on the ideas and was completely transformed. So the doctor's opinion tells me that your problems can be complex, your depression can be great, but you can get sold on the ideas and have a complete transformation, a complete change. The doctor's opinion then says, read this book, even if your intention is to ridicule. At the end of it, it says, you might come to scoff, right? But maybe you might wind up praying. And I think that's true for so many of us. We come annoyed, some of us laughing about this God thing, rolling our eyes. And yet, what I've seen happen countless times is that we wind up becoming people who pray. And so, my feeling is if you're going to stay and throw yourself, at the mercy of a miracle, you start by prayer, right? That's where we start. We start with prayer. And um, with that, I'll pass.